So we can go ahead and go to John chapter 20. And we are just going to read two verses this morning, and it's verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, have, you may have life in his name. You know, this passage that we're in this morning uh, has to do with the motives of John, with John's motives. And motives mean everything to us. We care a lot about people's motives uh, because uh, motives are the why that you do the things that you do. Uh, we started school the last few weeks. Uh, our kids started school again. And as we went in and met the teachers and had the open houses, um, and, and even every day as, we, as I drop um, Tegan and Davey off at school, every morning as I drop them off, their teachers are always so excited, they're so enthusiastic, they're so ready for the students to come. They talk about the passion that they have for teaching, they talk about how great of a year it's going to be, and uh, every, in every way you get a sense that they want to be there, that they want to be teaching your kid, that they would rather do nothing else uh, in that moment um, if given the opportunity than to like teach your kid what they're teaching them, right? Uh, you don't walk in and drop your kid off in the classroom and they're just kind of like, all right, punching the clock, you know? It, six more hours, seven more hours, then I'm done, right? Can't wait for the weekend, right? Uh, th that's not the way. Now, they're, th they're thinking that, of course, but... <laughs> That's not the way that they communicate and come across because if you thought for a moment that your children are being entrusted to someone whose motivation was literally nothing more than earning money and having something to do, then uh, you'd probably be hesitant to uh, just sort of allow your kids to be taught by these people, be invested in by these people, right? Because motives mean everything to us. Even when we know that, of course, people get jobs because they need money and they invest themselves in careers because they need something to do and be about and, and, and kind of even help define who they are, uh, you still want to believe that the motives that people have are what they say that they are. I learn with my kids all about motives uh, because their motives are very easy to see. They're very transparent. Uh, my son, uh, I told him this last weekend that if he helped me out in the yard, if he, so, so for the last couple of weeks, it's been if you mow the lawn, you can have a can of Pringles. And uh, it's, a, it's a deal. It is a good deal. Um, you know, he doesn't do the best job. I think my neighbors probably care more than anyone uh, because there's a seven-year-old mowing my lawn. Um, but, you know, he gets a can of Pringles. It's a win-win, right? Well, when... Uh, this last weekend, I said, you know, if you do a bunch of yard work and stuff with me, then you can play video games today, a little bit later. And uh, you should have seen it. You should have seen him go. I mean, him pushing a lawnmower in terms of center of gravity and physics and whatnot, uh, it's basically impossible. Like, he drives it into the ground and uh, just is stopped. Like, he can barely get moving at all. And yet, he, he does it. 
Uh, and then after that, he did the next job I gave him and the next job I gave him. But the problem with video games, and this is why he doesn't get to play them very much, is because the moment he knows there's even a possibility of them, then it's all he cares about all day, like all he cares about. And so every single time he starts talking about something, you know what that is going to be about. Hey, Dad, I have an idea. Is it the idea to play video games? Well, maybe. We're not right now, right? Hey, Dad, here, I have another idea. Is the other idea to play video games? Maybe. Then no, not right now. Okay. Hey, Dad, I'm going to say something, and you're not going to like it, you know? <laughs> okay. Is it that you want to play video games? Maybe, right? Okay. Yeah, you're right. I don't like it, you know? Um, hey, maybe in, uh, after this great breakfast that we're having, uh, Tegan, don't finish that sentence, right? I don't want to hear the end of it, right? I mean, every single thing is that, right? When, I, when, they go, when he goes and plays with his friends and they come and play with his house, little kids are brutal when, in, how, in how bad they are at hiding their motives. I mean, they're obviously not even concerned with hiding their motives much of the time because grown-ups have learned. We have learned. If you're going to get anywhere in life, you've got to hide your motives, right? You've got to mask them for more noble things, uh, so there's like nothing sadder than a, than a kid, you know, than, than talking to your kids about playing with their friends and, you know, uh, that horrible, horrible, painful statement being uttered out loud. They don't have any good toys, right? Uh, that, is, that, is, that is like the, the, the saddest thing, right? Like, like, or like, or like, like, why do you guys keep going over to their house? Because we don't have any, because they say we don't have any good toys or whatever, right? It's like, it is, aren't you playing with each other? Aren't you friends? Yeah, yeah. I, I could play with a cardboard box, you know, as long as that cardboard box had better toys than I do, right? The, like, like it's, so, it's so clear and transparent so much of the time that uh, what young kids want, the things that drive them, and we get better at covering these things up as we head eventually here at some point into an election again. Uh, we will begin to be uh, fooled by, the, by others and their motives as people pretend to care more than anything about us and our well-being, to selflessly and sacrificially give of their lives and their, and their possible career time so that we can be better uh, and live better. True public servants, right? Not at all self-motivated uh, by the desire to uh, rise to the most powerful office uh, in the free world, right? Uh, that is what I think of when I think of an election cycle, right? When I think of people who get better and better. Now, now, now that's not to say every person that has ever run or ever will run or ever is running, but for the most part, the reason that cynicism comes out in us as we begin to watch elections happen is because we can tell that so many people are simply... Uh, tailoring themselves to best tell us what we want to hear. And when we know that that's someone's motives, it's coming from a selfish place, it makes us feel very cynical, have a hard time having confidence in any leaders. Here, John is doing the thing that I admire the most. He is saying outright what his motive is, what his motivation is. He isn't pretending to be any more objective than he really is. He says clearly in these two verses that we read last week in our passage, 
and yet needed to come back to because they are the purpose of the Gospel of John. And as we're just one week away now from the end of this series, you guys can cheer or whatever, uh, one week away, uh, next week, we'll, we'll finally wrap this up. We, we needed to stop and talk about what John says is the reason why he uh, wrote out this gospel, the reason why this has been recorded. He set out to talk about these things that Jesus did. And as Justin just read, he says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John is making it clear that this has been written so that those who read it would come to belief and that through that belief they would have life. He is seeking to save lives with what he is writing. He is not claiming to be a historian, sociologist, a philosopher. He is not claiming to commentate on and add to the generations of literature and study and analysis and commentary given by Jewish leaders that have come before him. He is not pretending to be an intellectual in that endeavor. He is writing so that all who read will be convinced that these things truly happened and that this will lead them to believe because he believes that it's a matter of life and death. Because of this, when we read the Gospels, we are struck by how focused they are. They are not an attempt to give us the historical account of the entire life of Jesus Christ. They're not written to give us the historical account of the entire culture surrounding uh, the minister of Jesus Christ, in which it happened. They are four different viewpoints of the ministry of Jesus and all of the things that pertain to his gospel. His miraculous birth, his call into ministry, uh, his anointing with the Holy Spirit, many of the miracles that he did, the things that he said, his crucifixion, and as we've read about the last couple of weeks, his resurrection. Why these specific things? Because the goal here, says John, is so that you would come to believe. It is not a surprise that we do not have a complete picture of the life of Jesus and of the culture around him because that was not the goal of these gospel authors. We've spent months in this book, in this gospel account of Jesus through John. And although we have learned a lot about humility, patience, being spiritually introspective, able to look within yourself and understand your motivations, as well as learning about Jesus himself, as we've learned about being disciplined, about being loving, as we've learned about all these things, this gospel is not about being all of those things. This gospel was not written by John so that you would be more loving, be more patient, be more kind, be more generous, be more humble, be more spiritually deep. This gospel was written, says John, so that you would believe in Jesus and all the things that he did, in him have life, and then 
through that belief, you would be able to embody and really live out the kingdom that Jesus himself is ushering in. This word for believe, it's a Greek word, it means pisteo, and it means to believe to the extent of having complete trust or confidence in something. So it's an active word. It means it doesn't just mean to think something's true. It means uh, this belief is, is, is you believe something enough that you have active trust and complete trust and confidence in it. Okay, so, so there's different reasons why you would have to believe something or why you would trust in something and have confidence in it. This is not to believe on any level or even just a little bit, okay? There's kind of a spectrum of belief. We all know that's true. You can believe something a little bit. You can believe something maybe halfway. You can be on the fence about something for a long time. Many of us will spend our whole lives being uh, on the fence about many things. This is not that. He doesn't say, I've uh, written this down so that you will uh, kind of start to believe and, and that's probably enough for you. All God cares about is that you're on the journey of belief in some way, at some point. He says, I've written these things down so that you will believe, meaning that you'll have such confidence and trust in who Jesus is that you'll then live in a way that shows that. Now, what it also doesn't mean is to have reliance on something because you have no other choice, because you have to. Perhaps you're in a situation where you have no control, where you've only been given one opportunity or one option. And so you're forced to trust in something, you're forced to believe in something, you're forced to have confidence in something because it's all that's presented to you. Your options are limited. It's also not that. It is a belief that is chosen, and the emphasis here that we read about in the Greek is you can't use this word for something that's not worthy of belief, right? So again, that's like a situation where you're being forced to trust or depend in something, but you may not think that it's worthy, right? So, so if you've been put under the authority of someone, if you're being governed by someone, if you're being, uh, uh, if you're being basically forced to follow a person because maybe even they're using the threat of force to, to, to do this in your life, if you're living in that way, but you don't really think that person's worthy of your trust. You don't think that person's worthy of your, of your faith and your confidence. We all know what that is like to be placed in a situation where we are maybe forced to, to trust in something that we don't really trust in because we don't think it's worthy. This word isn't to be used in situations where uh, the, the trust is simply forced. It is only used in situations where the trust is earned. Basically, so that you would believe in this thing that is worthy of being believed in. Why? Because it's true. It's that simple. I have written these things so that you would believe. I can't think of a better example of the kind of belief that this is talking about than what you read about in the Old Testament with David and Goliath. We love the story of David and Goliath. It's one of those cinematic Old Testament accounts that you could just see played out, right? Uh, the idea that there is this uh, great giant who is a warrior who, who comes and begins taunting God's people. And as Goliath comes and, 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 and he says, simply give up, simply surrender, right? And then David shows up, this little unassuming shepherd, right? And what does David do? He says, well, you know, 
Our God's big enough. I'm not worried. I'll fight him, right? Now, the story of David and Goliath isn't about how great David is. It's really hard for us, right? We like biblical stories that are about people being great. But uh, David, like every other person in the Bible, has his flaws. Is not perfect and is not the hero in David and Goliath. David and Goliath is simply an example of a person saying, listen, guys, do we, do we believe this thing or not? I mean, if we do, then it doesn't matter how many giants these guys have, right? I mean, I mean, God can obviously defeat them. I mean, why are we even worried about the size of the army or the enemy, right? That's, that's it. That is all that David really knows. Is he knows that, well, if God means what he says, if we believe him, then yeah, I can, I can go out there and God's going to find a way to defeat this guy. And that is ultimately what happens, right? It's belief that's, that's earned, right? It's belief that, is, that, that this thing is worthy of your belief. This is why John wrote this gospel, he says, so that those who read it would come to believe in Jesus and that they would have life in him as a result of that. So this is his motive. This is his goal. And a lot of people would have a problem with this. They would say, well, that's too subjective, right? Uh, Which implies, naively implies, that a person can objectively write anything. That a person could objectively uh, seek to tell the story of anyone or anything. That a person can be motivated in a way that is in no way influenced by themselves and their own desires and their own beliefs and their own opinions. Which we know is absolutely not possible. It's not true. I have come to respect more and more people who can articulate their motivations for things, even if those motivations are not always good, because I find that uh, there are fewer and fewer people who can actually say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I know myself well enough to know that, and so I can be honest about it. But there's a problem inherent in this, which is So, okay, if John did write it for this reason, then can we trust it? Can you trust a gospel written by someone who says, I'm writing it so that you'll believe it? I've got a goal here. The goal is that you would come to believe this thing. Can we trust it is a question. We've talked a little bit about the culture of the early church and uh, the scene in which Jesus shows up to do ministry. And uh, we've talked about this idea of, um, of Rome and God's people, the Jews, trying to live under the oppression of Rome, under their rule. And we've talked about how, uh, what that would have been like. You see, the Roman people believed uh, that Rome was this great thing. But their story as a people, their existence as a people, was one in which you looked back on what are called the glory days of Rome. So their story, if you were to say, what does it mean to be a Roman citizen, a proud one, would point to the past. They would point to some things that happened, how eventually there was this unity that would come through a great ruler, and and, and that they as a people um, are the result of that. And so, so Romans are those who can point back to the glory days of Rome and say, this is who we 
were. This is one of the most common things that we see in cultures and groups of people is group after group after group living in light of not something that they are anticipating to have happen, but something that did happen to them. Many of us know what that can be like. We might be able to say, I don't, I don't know what I think, you know, uh, the glory days ahead of us of America should look like or, or I hope will look like, but I know of the past that we've had as a country and here are the things that I think to and I think those are the glory days, right? That's our success story. That's when we became really who we are. God's people, the Jews, they knew what this was like better than anyone because a huge part of their identity as God's people was things he had done in the past. One thing above all else that we looked at in depth last year was the exodus of God's people from Egypt. There's no other single event in history that shaped their identity as a group of people than what happened in Egypt over those hundreds of years and God's way of bringing them out. In fact, it is an incredible illustration to us of why God chooses to work in the way that he does is because how do you make yourself known to more than just one generation of people? Because one miracle is remembered by one generation. Is that, that them as a people, they as a people, will find their very identity in something like God's deliverance from Pharaoh. Their greatest holy day, the Passover, it was a day of remembering the exodus from Egypt. And, and that's not the only holy day where they remember the exodus from Egypt and their time in slavery. So as a people, they, they see themselves as those who, and there's this kind of cycle that scholars study and talk about again and again. There's a tyrant. There is a, there is a, there's a, a redeemer, a person brought. There is deliverance. Then there's a promise and anticipation, right? But what is unique about God's people is that they have one of the most incredible pasts that you can have as a group of people. To look back at and say, this is where we've come from, this is who made us who we are. It's why you feel connected to the people in your family, even if you don't like them. Because you have a shared past. These things made us who we are. But not only do they have that, but the Jewish people have a future. God says to his people, there is something to look ahead to as a people. So who are we as a people? We're a people who are looking ahead, who are looking towards something that's going to happen eventually. This is not as common in groups, in societies. The idea that we as a people are looking towards something, looking ahead to something. In fact, one of the interesting things that you find, especially when you study the Bible, is that it is so much easier for us to find our identity in things that have already happened in the past that we know probably won't ever happen again, rather than it is to find our identity in things that we're told will happen in the future. It's one of the hard things about being a follower of Jesus, about being one of God's people, is your identity is in something that is here but not yet fully here. And because of that, you look ahead and it's difficult. It's difficult to go, I, I'm who I am because of what I know is going to happen, because of what I know is coming. And so God's people 
were anticipating that someone was going to come, that something was going to come, that they would once again be delivered because that is how God works. And he says through his prophets in the Old Testament that he's going to do that. But one of the things that we also see in the Bible, and I mentioned it before, is that physically seeing or experiencing something is no guarantee of belief over the long haul. You see, what, what John is saying to his readers is he's saying, I've told you these things. I've, I've given you an account of these things and pointed to the witnesses of these things so that you would believe, so that you would believe in what has happened, in what Jesus has done, in who Jesus is. And he says, interestingly enough, right before that, we read about Jesus talking to Thomas, doubting Thomas. And what Jesus says to him as he, as he gives him the proof that he wants is he, says, is he says, there are those who will have greater faith that won't get to see the things that you're physically seeing and will still believe. And he says, that's a good thing. He says, he says there are those we could relate who will believe and trust in me, but will not see and physically experience the things that you're experiencing. He says this knowing what is going to come. He says this knowing the great number of people who will believe in Jesus and follow him, even though they are not physically experiencing the things that Thomas did, the doubter. And while it is so easy to say, if God wanted us to believe, why wouldn't he just show up? Why wouldn't he just do something again? Well, we know that his people constantly said that. The Israelites in the Old Testament, again and again and again, would say, well, just show up again, God. Or they would just forget, and they wouldn't even look to God. Because again, a, a miracle, a physical uh, miraculous intervention by God and seeing him yourself, it, it often looks like it only lasts so long in the minds of people. There needs to be something else in order for the people to really remember who God is and what he's done. There are so many things that we are prone to believe so much in the moment and then to move away from over time. And I mean things that we say, I will never forget this. I was thinking about this phrase this week. We will never forget. This is what we say. This is what we say about the, the Twin Towers on September 11th. We say, we will never forget. But the truth is, as more people are born, and as more people live their lives and grow up, having not experienced the falling of the Twin Towers, having never experienced seeing the Twin Towers while they were still standing. We know the truth is that people will forget, that people will not see the significance of that time in the history of America. That was something that I'll never, I'll never forget, that on that day, September 11th, it was the one day in my life when it felt like every single person that I saw was thinking about the same thing. Like everybody, every car on the freeway, everybody that you interacted with, we were all thinking about the same thing. And I never felt that before, and I've never felt that since. There are things that have happened in the past in our country's history 
I was thinking about the Civil War and the idea, the crazy idea that we would go to war with ourselves, that there is a thing that we would disagree on so fundamentally that we would go to war with ourselves over it. No way that would ever happen again. There's no way that we could ever live in a country. We're becoming so united since then, right? There's such harmony that's been, that's been seen since then, right? One of the things that shocked so many people about the last presidential election was the fact that it, it indicated to many that there are so many others out there that think so differently than they do. People who thought, I thought I was the majority, right? I thought, I thought what I thought or what I wanted was, was what most people thought or what most people wanted. In fact, it seems that you want the absolute, absolute opposite of what I want. We uh, would often not, we wouldn't think of ourselves as a, as a people who could ever go to war with one another, right? There's so many other enemies out there that we should be united against. Yet, it's so easy for us to forget about the things that have happened, even in our own history, even the things that we say we'll never forget, the things that we say will always be there for us. I bring all of this up because we are so prone to believe that if we could see these things as people did then, if we could be in one of those first generations of people after John writes this, when you could still go and find the witnesses and you could still go and, and hear the accounts from the people that Paul talks about, when he talks about all of the witnesses that saw Jesus resurrected, we're so prone to believe that if we could see those things that we would really believe and that because we can't, how are we expected to? How are we supposed to believe? Well, here is what we know about the ministry of Jesus for a fact. The first is that he attracted large crowds. We know that. Every, every account, everything says that Jesus attracted large crowds, okay? Uh, people were coming to him everywhere that he went, and that he was healing people in these crowds. He was, he was finding people that were sick and that were hurting, and he was healing them. He was supernaturally healing, he was preaching the gospel, and he was doing miraculous things, which is the reason why these crowds were with him. His opponents claimed that he was in league with the devil. Not a very flattering thing to have said about you by the Jewish leaders. Something that we know is true. So why would his opponents say not that this guy's bogus, not that there's nothing to him, not that he's just a crazy person or a liar, but why would they say that he's in league with the devil himself? For the same reason that these great crowds followed him, the miraculous things that he did. Many of these are the things that John talks about in his gospel. Jesus' explanation to all those people was this, there's something new happening now. And as, and as easy as it is for us to think that's the message that people want to hear, right? That, that oh, of course, people, would, people would, would respond to that. People actually, I know this is hard to believe, people don't like the message something new is happening now, okay? People like the message the old thing is happening again. They like that, right? right? People like the message uh, of sort of general 
like encouragement and spirituality. They like that, right? You're good now. And I'm here to tell you that. <laughs> Crowds of people, right? If all that he was doing was encouraging people to feel better about themselves, we could understand why people might be drawn to that message, especially the people that he's healing. But that's not what Jesus was saying to people. He was saying something new is happening, something completely new. One of the things I've noticed is that, is that every time there is a new sort of wave uh, in the church or outside of the church of some social wave where people get on board and start reading books and following people and leaders, it always mimics some aspect of our culture that, that it is embracing, right? So if I can capitalize on this trend today, if I, can, if I can keep moving forward this message, if I can build on this thing that people seem to really resonate with right now, then people will like my message, and they do. That gets crowds. But Jesus wasn't doing any of that. He was saying things that were so uh, revolutionary that they got him killed. The other thing that we have to recognize is that there's this idea that, that we have sort of accepted on many levels without even thinking about it, which is that skepticism is in some way uh, more neutral or objective than having faith, and it isn't. The idea that we must start from a place of skepticism in this life today, because that's the only way to be really neutral or objective, which isn't true. To start from a place of skepticism is, no, is in no way objective. It's a, it's a subjective place to start from. I've known this as I've known people, people who claim to be skeptical and critical and yet objective, because I, I don't see any objectivity in the way that that ever is played out, or the places that that claim comes from. You know this if you know a pessimist, right? You know somebody who's always, you know, a realist, as I like to call it. If you know a realist, and, uh, and they're always going to say maybe the same thing, and you go, well, well, you're not objective, right? Even though you see your view of things in the world as being objective. And one of the things that we see that is so, so incredible is that as Jesus goes and preaches his gospel, as we read about in John, as he ministers to people, he personally heals so many who are sick. One of the things that we have to understand about the things that people healed in people much of the time, where these were diseases and infirmities, uh, all kinds of suffering that, that plagued people, probably completely affecting their life in every way. So when you came to Jesus and he helped you walk because you were lame, he gave you your life back. Because your life was over. If you had a hemorrhage and were bleeding again and again and again, year after year, and no one could help you, it said in that account that, that this woman had suffered under many doctors. And we go, I know what that feels like. And Jesus gave her her life back again. Her life was no longer suffering under many doctors. Her life was no longer doctors. Her life was given back. The person who is blind, the person who is deaf, the person who is insane, the person who is possessed, the person who has been outcast. As Jesus comes and heals each and every one of them, he gives them back their life. 
something new is happening, Jesus says. I am bringing something new, and that new thing will give you life again. It will not improve your situation a little. It will not be a better way to view your circumstances because there's nothing you can do about them. I am here to tell you, you now can have life in me. Can we trust what John is saying? What we have seen throughout the gospel as we've gone through it as a church is that so many of the things that Jesus says and does are things that would cause his ministry to fail were it not that he were the Son of God. That people would not want his message. They would not want to follow him. His calls were not easy. He brought more controversy and enemies than he brought friends and followers. He, he began his ministry and mostly did his ministry in the context of Jewish people while saying things that were incredibly offensive to Jewish people, especially in the temple. I mean, come on, right? If you're going to say bad things about Jewish people, don't stand in the middle of the temple and say it, right? That's not a great place. Maybe go over here and say it. And yet, people followed him. Crowds followed him. And his ministry lives on today. And his message was, something new is coming. I am bringing something new. But the bigger problem, I think, then, can we trust what John says here? Can we trust that this is real and it happened is this? The bigger problem is, if we do trust it, what does that mean for us? If it is real, what does it mean for me? If by believing that we may have life in his name, then what would life in his name look like? What we often consider to be great faith is just normal faith in a world of no faith. Again, think about David. David simply said, do we believe this or not? Because if we do, this doesn't matter. What we consider to be great faith is often normal faith in a world of no faith, where we're used to seeing people with no faith. We so have the tendency to overcomplicate the things that Jesus tells us to do because it's scary or hard to just go do them. But what we're faced with here is this simple truth. If we do believe, if we know that it's real and that it's true, and if you're sitting here and you go, I believe, I believe. No, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he was resurrected, rose from the dead. I believe all of these things as we just sung. I believe, I believe. If we believe, then what does that belief look like? The best illustration of our sort of dilemma, I think I heard from the pastor Francis Chan many years ago. He said, we so often approach God like children who have just been told by their father, go clean your room. And we go away and we come back the next day and our father says, have you cleaned your room yet? And we say, no, but I prayed about it for a while. And I really feel like I understand what you're wanting from me. And then they go away and they come back the next day and their father says, did you clean your room? yet, and they say, no, but I, I, I got together with some friends, and we all talked about what it means to clean my room, and 
what it would look like to clean my room and, and how, how many things get in the way of cleaning my room. And, and then they leave and then come back and, and the next day and the father says, did you clean your room yet? And they say, no, but I did a language study on the statement that you gave me, clean your room. And I looked up what it means in various translations and the, the, the language that you gave it to me. And because, you know, you were very, uh, you were very forceful in that language there and you said, clean your room. And, and, I, and I sifted through it all, and I, and I could see that, that, that really what you're wanting is for me to clean my room, right? <laughs> Just clean your room. This is the nature of so much of Jesus' teaching. It is not that complicated. It is, uh, it, is, it is scary to us, but it's not that complicated. And much of what he says is simply what it will look like when someone believes and then begins living their life. But this is the scary part for many of us. As the study comes to an end, as the, as the time in the gospel comes to a close, and, and we, we hear from John, I didn't do this so that you could all know how to be better parents or friends or neighbors. I didn't do this so that you could all feel better about yourselves. I didn't do this so that you could make new friends. I didn't do this so that you could be more intelligent. I did this so that you would believe in Jesus and have life in him. That's why I wrote this. That's the goal. That's what I want you to get out of it. Do you believe that you have life in his name? In nothing else but in his name. Do you believe that God knows you completely? That he knows you and sees you? which means no one else needs to get you or understand you or even like you for you to be you. How about, how about the way, that, the way that, that, that Mary responds to, to Jesus by just worshiping him compulsively, right? Like just worshiping him, not doing anything else. Do we believe that, that, that the most natural response to who Jesus is is worship? Do we believe that? Jesus talks about, or as John talks about in Jesus' words in John 15, that, that, re, that, that there is real, genuine, lasting fruit, that there's real fruit that you can have. You can have, bear real fruit in your life, but you must be connected to him. Do you believe that you can bear real fruit by being connected to him? If so, are you connected to him? Do you believe that he offers peace, like we talked about, shalom, Real, lasting, completeness, and peace. If you do, then the question is, don't others need that peace as well? Do you now have the ability to share with them a life-altering peace that is the only real thing that they need? If you believe that Jesus suffers along with us as we suffer, that he gives us resurrection and life? Do you believe that he gives resurrection? Do you then choose the life that he gives after the resurrection? We said early on in our series that faith is not asking us to blindly trust in something for no reason. It's asking us to trust in and live out these things he gives us reasons to believe, but are contrary to our nature. We know what this is like. We're going to start a new series in a couple of weeks. And this series is going to be about how, in a sense, this whole kingdom 
that God is showing us feels completely upside down. There's this phrase often used to describe the kingdom of God, the upside down kingdom. Because we're so often told to do things that are the opposite of what seem natural to us for a kingdom. And yet what we see in the Bible is that the way God designed us was to live a certain way. Many of the problems and difficulties and things that we deal with and stumble over in our lives again and again are the result of us not living as this kingdom ought to be. Why don't we much of the time? Because it is counterintuitive to us. It seems upside down, it seems backwards from what we think we ought to actually be doing. So we, we ask ourselves these, these questions as we, as we come to, to deal with, with this gospel, this teaching of Jesus, and all these miracles and the things that he's done. Should I be as fearful as someone who doesn't believe this? Should I be as fearful of sickness as someone who believes this life is actually all they have? Should I be as concerned about money as someone who thinks they are on their own and money is the only thing that will take care of them? Should I be as worried about the opinions of other people as someone whose entire identity depends on the opinions of other people? Should I be as invested in some of the things going on around me in this world as those who have no king to look to, who have no other kingdom that they are actually a part of? Should I be as obsessed with rules and laws as those who need rules and laws in order to be justified at all? Do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? If I do, then what does that mean? And rather than complicate it and confuse it, and say, we just need more time to study it. We just need more time to understand it. What would happen if we just began doing it? Trying to do it, at least. This gospel, as I've said, is not about all of us learning how to be more loving and patient and humble and spiritual and introspective and worshipful. This gospel is about us believing that Jesus was real, that the things he did were real, and that those things drew such crowds to him, even though his message often repelled people from him and got him ultimately killed. That we are to believe that Jesus chose to show God's power in the most personal way he could. That if you, right now, with that thing that is, it feels ruining your life, approached Jesus, that he would heal that thing and say, this is to show you that God sees you and he hears you and he knows you and he cares about you. And I'm not doing this because all I care about is healing people. I'm doing this because I want you to see that I have authority and I want you to believe in me. And I want you to know that God is doing something new. Something that means you have life. This gospel's written so that we would believe those things. If we, can, if we believe those things, then we will be more humble. 
we will be more patient. We will be less self-absorbed. We will be less fearful. We will be less materialistic. We will be more worshipful. Because belief is actually what drives all of the things that we do.